Hello, this is Damien, the tall, friendly atheist dad. I hope you're having a great day, and welcome to the Tall, Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Hello and welcome to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Uh, my name is Damien and it is a pleasure to have on the line Prophet of Zod. Zod, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? <laughs> I, I feel like I've been up half the day. So uh, after this, I'm going <laughs> to go have a nap. But yeah, um, Zod, please tell, please tell everyone a bit more about yourself. If they, if they don't know you already... Tell us more. Yeah, um, I go, I'm a YouTuber primarily. I go by the name of Prophet Azad. Uh, long story behind why that is. I've explained it a few times. But essentially, okay. I come from a very strong fundamentalist evangelical background growing up and uh, came to leave the faith a few years ago and since then have started a YouTube channel uh-huh. that is largely helping people who are doubting or coming out of the faith process questions they have or doubts they have and just kind of giving them a concrete voice on that journey. Yep, and I have to, I have to say that some of your stuff has definitely helped me, um, you know, solidify some of the thoughts I had, uh, some of the anti or the anti apologetics thought that I had. And uh, your series, um, William Lane Craig, um, was it idiot or willful POS? Yeah, <laughs> was um, was a uh, yeah because um, I I constantly I constantly got you know um, people telling me oh William Lane Craig is one of the best apologists out there, and yeah for me uh, I think you highlighted it in that uh, his morality is really divine command theory dressed up with uh, with, with eloquency. Yeah, he's a tricky one. Like he's he's a very interesting phenomena. In that he he's a, like a very reassuring thing for Christians to feel like they have in their back pocket. Yeah. Like no matter what battles they lose, they feel like they feel like anybody's going to come crashing into William Lane Craig, and that'll settle the issue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I found that I found that they're very touchy about having him criticized or picked apart for that reason. <laughs> but he's yeah. he's interesting because he's he he does dress it up in, in a lot of eloquence, and he's very good at that. So you can have a feeling you can have a feeling there's something wrong with what he's saying. And it's hard to really pin down what it is. So that's what I tried to do in those videos. Yeah, and I, th- I thought you did a, I thought you did a good, well, a good enough job that like it helped sway my opinion on him uh, fairly, fairly convincingly. But anyway, um, since we've just had Easter, um, we are now heading towards Pentecost. And what better way than to discuss Pentecost Pentecostalism with Prophet of Zod? Yay! Hooray! Pentecostalism. Uh, pen- <laughs> Pentecostalism. So. Now, me personally, I wasn't strictly Pentecostal myself. I was what would be called a third wave charismatic. So you have Pentecostalism as the first wave of charismaticism. You then have the charismatic movement in the 70s and 80s as the second wave. And then you have the more modern modern fundamentalist version as as the third wave. And I, I see Pentecostalism as a very kind of like a a unique a literalist interpretation of 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 the bible uh, especially when uh in joel uh you have you know um the disciples so so jesus comes out he gets crucified he he buggers off basically 
and then the disciples stay away and all these weird things all these weird things happening and to me it's a bit like um like god has a new plan for salvation and the disciples at pentecost is sort of like an all hands meeting to kick off a new campaign if i was looking at if i was looking at it from a corporate corporate perspective right <laughs> um your thoughts on that yeah there yeah there's a lot there i guess to have thoughts about it's a there is definitely a big history behind pentecostalism i think it's a part of christianity that a lot of people could be exposed to Christianity, even be within mainstream evangelicalism and never really know much about it. Mm-hmm. But it's this whole big wide world when you actually grow up in it. Oh, yes. And it's, yes. A, and it's a very crazy kind of insular, I would say, part of Christianity. And we can dig into that more when we get into the nature of it. But, oh, indeed, indeed, indeed. But um, so did you actually grow up in Pentecostal or just evangelical, evangelical Protestantism? I grew up a Pentecostal, so ah, uh, okay, yep, yep. Church and school. I grew up in a Pentecostal mm-hmm. environment, Not so fair. that was my my whole little world there. Uh, it started with my grandpa, who was an Assemblies of God. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, AOG. Yep, yep. Yeah. Say no, say no more. Yeah, and so we were we were slightly different than Assemblies of God. It was an independent little Alaskan based okay. family of churches, is what they call it, but it was along basically along those same lines. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and uh, assemblies of God have have a bit of a history in Australia as well, uh, which we'll get into, which we'll get into later. Um, yeah. So to me, the the Holy Spirit coming on the disciples is really just an all hands meeting to kick off a new salvation campaign, um, as if like God had failed the first time with Adam and Eve. Then uh, you have the Abrahamic covenant, and obviously that falls apart because then God needs to make um, a campaign, uh, a covenant with Moses, and then that falls apart. You have the Davidic covenant, and then that falls apart, and then you have you have Jesus, and I, I think the Jesus campaign has fallen apart a bit as well. Yeah, I guess that could be argued. <laughs> The, the way we saw the Holy Spirit within that context, I guess, was first off, you said it was a very literal movement, and I would agree with that. Mm. Um, when I grew up, it, I had an understanding that it was basically open and shut that speaking in tongues was something Christians were supposed to do yes. because it was very clearly taught in the Bible. And so it was very easy for them to relay to us a clear narrative, which pretty much all fundamentalist denominations teach their followers, which is that nobody could really be mistaken about what the Bible says. They're just disobedient or they just aren't ah. following it in its full power. And so there was very much that narrative that the Bible is very clear that believers should be speaking in tongues. Mm. And we built a whole other, we built a whole bo- body of teachings around that. Yep. And I can get in, I can get into that portion of it whenever uh, we will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what that, that is. That is coming later. But just even even the history behind uh, Pentecostalism, um, the way I see it is the the the, the four great awakenings, and I, I think America is in the um, is in the effects of the of the fourth great awakening now. So just in researching the history, if you go back to the 1730s with the Wesleyan Methodists having the revival in uh, revivals in the colonies. Um, the extemporaneous public preaching, you know, on, on the soapbox and the whole thing about conviction of sin. Uh, 
which is uh, yeah to be to be in the uh, colonies in the 1730s. That'd be that'd be fun. Uh, we then get to the second, the second Great Awakening, which is you know roughly 1800, 1840. You have your camp meetings, your tent meetings, uh, your frontier preachers, which then gives birth to the Holiness movement and the Pentecostal movements, um, and that lasts till about the 1930s. And then we get to the whole thing about Charles Fox Parham, William Seymour, uh, Amy Simple McPherson, the Azusa Street Revival, and our friends, the Assemblies of God. Yeah, and that all sounds vaguely familiar. Like, to be honest, speaking mostly from my personal experience, mm-hmm. bits and pieces of that sound familiar, but I don't really remember the whole history going together. But I definitely have it has, definitely has a strong favor of having come in that mid to late 1800s to early 1900s period, mm-hmm. where basically there were all these really weird, small, strangely fanatical splinter groups off of Christianity. And I always had that. I mean, that was the period of time where you had all kinds of, I, I believe, the Mormons, the JWs, the Seventh yep. Day Adventists, all these people Church with of, these Church of Christ scientists. Yeah, uh, all these the, people. The, 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 I was going to say the the, the, theos, the Theosophical Society as well. I think they started up around then. Yeah, there was there were a lot of them, and, and basically even outside of Christianity, there was a lot of kooky stuff around that time. People <laughs> just were people were into all kinds of supernatural, paranormal, woo type stuff, alternative medicine. Yep. So. I always, whether or not it's completely accurate, I always associated Pentecostalism as being one more of those little groups, all of which thought they were extremely special, of course. Yeah, and, well, they're, they're, all, they're all special in their own special way. Yeah. And my but, grandparents, actually, they, they had some history in that where um, yeah. in Europe, my grandpa was actually, the way he relays the story, he had been approached by Billy Graham and Ooh. during a revival service uh-huh. and and billy graham he said billy graham walked up to him and said you need jesus this was back when he was a you know not not the big name he is now he was it was post-war europe and oh, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. going around doing these little group meetings my grandpa got drawn in then um and then my grandma kind of got him involved as well and they ended up going from i don't know how much where exactly pentecostalism kicked in but it was in some of those that wasn't the really early days of it but with I think within some of the environment of Pentecostalism growing, they got into that on kind of the ground floor and mm-hmm. um, were both ordained ministers at some point, even though they were oh, okay. practicing preachers. Well, so they'd um to see you as an atheist, they'd be uh oh geez, okay. What what happened? Yeah, kind they wouldn't they wouldn't they wouldn't be thrilled with that. They're unfortunately not around today anymore, but oh, they would but... yeah. No, no, that's good. They um I mean, I love them both, and that's a hard thing. That's a whole other tangent. Like, oh, definitely, you, definitely. You, you, you love your family; they're they're great people, and you see them on a very personal level. But it's sad that non-belief is something that could just really quit, create a wedge between you and impact how they see you. Oh, indeed, I think that 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 is something you and I could talk about for hours. Um, having belief in family and uh, yeah, being a non-believer. Yeah. But um, yeah, and then I would argue that the the fourth great awakening is you know this power shift to evangelicalism, uh, parachurch organizations, and even non denominational Christianity. Because if you think about it, back um, even before the nineteen hundreds, the whole idea of not having a denomination, which kind of feels like a, a denomination in itself, is yeah a little bit weird. And so now, yeah, I would argue that um, especially in the in the southern states. Or for you, the southern southern states, um, yeah. The the whole thing about you know the Southern Baptists, 
um, the Mormons having their their, their influence, um, AIG, all this you know very strong evangelical identity, which yeah, I would say is is very much a, f- a fourth great awakening uh, thing. But yeah, I was gonna, for sure. And- I was going to ask in, in Alaska is there is there that religious divide between between um sorry no sorry. Between denominational and non-denominational? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, there... I don't know that it's a really specific divide. Uh, Alaska is a little different in that there's not really a really specific cultural flavor. Like, if you live in certain areas of the states, there's going to be a very strong Baptist history, a very strong Lutheran or Catholic history in that area. Alaska is kind of a melting pot and a very young, young culture up here. So we're a little more mixed and everything but there definitely okay. are there definitely are some non-denominational non-denominational churches and i could really get into my opinion of those and why mm, yeah. why they fit with pentecostalism but i won't go down that rabbit trail now but there, <laughs> there are but there are both but there's not really a defined divide between them that i could see because we just we're all kind of easygoing just be alaskans and do your thing up here for the most I, part. okay yeah which is um, kind of in a very Australian thing as well, in that like if you have a religion, good, but like don't force it down our kids' throats. Okay, oh, I they think. want to force it down the kids' throats for sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> there, <laughs> there, 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 there are the intense brands of it. There's just not quite as much of a. I mean, you'll sit there in your Pentecostal church and you complain about how weird the Baptists are, or all of the Protestant denominations will think the Catholics are just weird and terrible, okay. but there's not really a specific cult, local cultural flavor oh. where it's one or the other, you know. Okay, no, no, fair enough, fair enough. Because I do find it interesting that in uh, in Acts two seventeen, uh, Peter. So, so you've had the so the 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 all hands meeting has happened. Um, the disciples get their commission, like their their campaign brief, and they're going out and you know sh- sharing it on the streets. And so Peter. Uh, then he, in Acts two seventeen, right, like Peter says, you know, in in the last days, God will pour out His Spirit on on all people, um, as a fulfillment of Joel two twenty eight. But I find the funny thing is that that was spoken almost two thousand years ago, and if you do, if you do the sums, uh, two thousand years times three hundred sixty five days is roughly seven hundred thirty thousand days, which raises the question: How many final days does God need? I'm not sure how many he needs. Um, I would just say with certainty that we are always in them. That definitely seems to be the case. Well, it seems that every every gener- like every generation from Christ up until now um, seems to have had you know at least some uh, some nutbag out there saying the end times are near. And I can remember oh, yeah. when, when I can remember when I, when I was a kid. You know, um, you had those people. Like, I'm not. I'm not even talking about Harold Campling and um, and all that. I'm talking about just like local guys who are wandering the streets, or you might find them down down the corner of the church. You know, who are who sincerely believe that the end times are now. And that was, um, you know, back when I when, when I was a kid, and I'm obviously not a kid anymore. And I'm sure you would have uh, experienced some of that yourself. Yeah, it was a big thing in our church too. Um- Within the church I grew up in, even in Campus Crusade and stuff, there would always mm-hmm. be people who would put up, they could put up slides showing t- historical timelines uh, yeah, and yeah. Ex- ex- explain why why we're right at the end right now, which things about Israel, which periods of time oh, passed from Jesus. 
you know, there's yeah. that thing in there's that thing in Revelation. I think they said time, times, and a half a time, which yeah. they interpreted in various different thousands ways. Of, thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we definitely we spent a lot of time, and I think this is kind of tied to uh, Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism as well, which is mm -hmm. very much the obsession with the end time. Yeah, uh, that goes along with a lot of other hyper spiritual elements of their their branch of Christianity. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like Israel, um, like I before I, before I was a Christian, I never really cared too much about Israel except for the conflict going over there. But in especially in Pentecostalism, um, anything bad that happens to Israel is taken as a sign that um, you know the end times are near because you know the, the temple will be you know what was it the temple will be destroyed or something or or whatever. But you know anything that happens to israel is taken as a sign that you know this is this is this is it guys get ready and then like a couple of years later another war happens and guys this is it get ready and then a few more years and another thing happens and guys get ready and we stopped yeah. getting ready long long time ago yeah and i don't know how much of that pentecostalism that was just part of my christian experience growing up so oh, sometimes okay. i can't tell which is which but there was definitely there was a lot of focus on Israel and mm -hmm. not only on the idea that anything going on surrounding Israel was a sign of the last times, but that you did not want to be on the wrong side of a war with Israel because God was going to come down and vaporize everybody. You know, yep. That kind of thing. Yep. Um, if I can ask, was your Pentecostal church um, dominion, were they dominion theologists or Christian reconstructionists as well? Oh. What exactly do you mean by those? Because I've heard that's different right. so, things uh, associated with those. Yeah, that's right. So I suppose Dominion theology is that the only good government is a God government. Okay, that's what I thought you meant by Dominionist. I was like, sure yeah. we're on the same page. No, that's right. That's yeah, right. yeah, definitely Dominionist. Uh, boy, that that freaks me out, especially considering the feeling that we're you know we could be a few generations away from a Christian Taliban over here in, in the in the states. But yeah, we were we were very much Dominionist. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted Christian people in government. Um, when as a voting issue, um, abortion itself was supposed to be close to the one issue you should care yep. about as a Christian. Yep. yep. And so, yeah, it, I would say very dominionist between the two. Yeah, that's um, yeah. In 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 Australia, we as I said because like we well, it's funny in that like we are a secular nation, but. We've only ever had one explicitly atheist uh, prime minister. Um, they've always, they've t tr traditionally always been either Catholic or uh, Anglican or Presbyterian or Methodist, like some sort of some sort of soft evangelical, um, soft ev Protestant type, or well, essentially Catholics. Um, but having said that, our current prime minister is actually a Hillsong Pentecostal. Oh wow! Which is. Um, and so there, there is a question of how much his his faith uh, influences his his decisions. Um, I, I don't see too much of it, but you know, I I might, I might be wrong. But yeah, when I was uh, neck deep in in the charismatic movement, um, there was always this thing about seeing revival, either personal revival, uh, society revival. You know that you know God's going to miraculously. Yeah, build all these churches, and that Christianity will, will be respected again, um, all all that kind of stuff. Yeah, boy, revival is that brings back a lot of memories. <laughs> but revival was <laughs> revival was a big part of Christianity, as I, as I understand it. Which, 
And hindsight's a little weird because actually a pastor had pointed this out once. Why do we keep needing revival when we should just be steadily growing in Jesus anyway? Like why, why are we dependent on these constant waves of something new, constantly fixing something, mm. if that makes any sense. And that's something I see. There's, there's a whole, whole issue behind that, which I think goes to the bottom of the fact that God's not evidently real and you're not going to, your life isn't going to align with the idea of him being real or what you'd expect if he's real. Mm. So yeah, revival was a, was a big thing. We didn't, you know, I didn't go to a lot of revivals. It felt like something a little old timey that, you know, people back in the day would have gone to intense and, you know, everybody falling down and weeping and all this stuff. Okay. It was interesting. You said like, in in Australia, we had um, I know uh, back in the I think fifties or sixties, Billy Graham came out once or twice. Mm-hmm. Um, in the two thousands, his son Franklin Graham come, came out, and they actually uh, booked out one of the big uh, sporting stadiums uh, to be able to you know fit all fit all the people in. And that, and then I was going to say there was a, about three or four years ago there was like a big um, like I think it was like a, 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 a national day of prayer where like all these churches had like you know outdoor outdoor displays and like inviting people from the public to come in and you know partake of you know fundamentalist Christianity basically, but um. Even, so uh, before, I let, before I let you jump in, um, even the songs that we sung in in church, um, "Touching Heaven, Changing Earth" by Hillsong was very popular because you know they sing "Sand Revival," you know all all this kind of stuff. Uh, Days of Elijah. Um, there was one church I was in where um, one of one of Australia's foremost prophets came came to a, came visited our church, and um, you know so we had to sing "These Are the Days of Elijah." Yeah, as if as if God's about to come. But then also, uh, Hillsong had a popular song back in the early nineties called the Gr- the Great Southland of the Holy Spirit, and it's like, yeah, but this is back in the late. This is back in the nineties, and we're 30, 40 years removed from that. And it's like, well, we haven't got any more Christian guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's all it's always right around the corner, isn't it? Indeed, it's, it's coming any moment now. Come on, be be ready. And and they do use the analogy of the or the parable of the of the virgin virgins and the lamps. You yeah. Know, don't don't be like the virgin that didn't you know have oil in their lamp. You know, be like the one that's hyper vigilant and paranoid and uh, can't ever rest because she'll be fired if she's not ready. Yeah, and that was a weird. I always thought that was a weird parable when I was a kid because. Why didn't all the ladies just huddle around the same lamps? But maybe I was taking the story too literally. <laughs> I just, I, whenever they use that, and of course they always use that to push us about being ready and being spiritual enough, even when I was in elementary school, which I think is a weird thing to do to kids. Yeah. I always just immediately got hung up on why did the ones whose lamps went out went go home instead of just sitting there with the light of the ones who had more oil? It was always kind of weird to me. Uh, n- n- nothing like a good Bible parody, uh, Bible parable to, um, yeah, get you thinking. But in in one of the churches I was in, now this is where um, uh, it gets a little bit weird. In that, so in the in the yeah, in the mid to late two uh, thousands, I was in a um, I, I was in a very very char- very charismatic church, and they had this belief that by the year twenty twenty there will be a million churches, 
and not just a million churches, but a million of their churches uh, around around the world. <laughs> so this so this guy had this um this this great vision. He felt this calling by God, and he had this vision of of a million of a, a million churches. And I actually ran the numbers one day, and I came to the maths that they'd have to like plant like a hundred and eighty churches, uh, like a hundred and eighty churches a week for every week up until the year 2020 in order to get those million churches. And I said, well, guys, you know, worldwide, you're barely planting 10 a year, yet you need to do 180 per week. Uh, what's, your, what's your explanation for that? Oh, God will do a miracle. Okay, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, could tell you, I could tell you stories about delusions of grandeur for sure that these- Oh, please, please. These different a- churches would have, but- yeah, to, to start with, just in general, even though we didn't have revivals and that felt like kind of an old-fashioned thing to me, mm-hmm. it was something my grandpa would talk about. You know, there's a revival service at my church. We're having revival all week. Yeah. I remember they would, once in our town, they'd pitch a tent in the middle of our small town of Ewerver, Alaska. They'd have this open-air tent mm-hmm. that we'd all gather in and have songs and everything, and they're trying to recreate this whole idea. But revival itself, just not revivals as in a big revival that you hold, but the idea of revival was a really core part of how we felt about our faith. And like you said, a lot of these songs, boy, some of these, you just say the, the like days of Elijah and stuff that gets these terrible songs running through my head and <laughs> gets stuck there. Uh, but there was, there was definitely this feeling that something was, there was going to be this outpouring. Something was going to Outpour, outpouring that's that's one of the yeah. buzzwords that they use outpouring renewal refreshment um yeah and while we had this dominionist attitude i think we really felt like if the holy spirit just moved society would just completely change and become christian of its own accord yep and there was also a very deep sense of personal revival which i think you had kind of alluded to and I remember constantly chasing that. You know, when you're a child or a teenager, you're just going to act like a kid or a teenager. Mm-hmm, That's just mm-hmm. the nature the nature of how things are. Yeah. But there was this huge pressure on you to, and I'd alluded to this, I think, in a video called um, "How a Relationship with God Torments Children." Yeah. Yep. There's this huge there, there's this huge pressure to be something you're just not going to be. No, no person's going to be that, much less a child or a teenager. You're not going to want to sit there experiencing God over the course of hours of prayer or endless worship services. And I remember just experiencing normal boredom and having parents and teachers getting on me about that. (laughs) And I think that drives this, this, that might feel like a little bit of a dovetail, but that drives this idea of revival, which you internalize that you don't just take it as I'm in trouble with my parents, but you internalize that as I'm I'm offending God. Yeah. There's something I should really want to sit there in God's presence. That should be what feels really good to me and what I want. Uh, and, and, and you touched another. So sorry, you keep going here. Oh, and I just get bored. And so you can get little highs, for example, if you go to some little retreat camp or something. Yep, yep. And where, you, where, where you, you're with other people who are already indoctrinated. So you get a yeah, whole bunch and, of indoctrinated people together. And, and they conjure that essentially through a kind of this cult group think um, concert type environment. Yep. 
And that stirs a feeling in you and you feel like you should always have that. You get that sense of release, not only the emotion of the moment, mm-hmm. but of the fact that, yes, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to have this relationship with God and I should feel this way. And I'm going to walk away from here and keep feeling that. Yep. And the fact is, that's what you would expect if God existed, right? You would have that feeling of relationship with him. But since he doesn't, and all you're doing is maintaining a little high that you stir up in the right environment. Yep. It's this constant anxiety that comes from not only feeling like you're doing the right things, you can't keep that feeling, but then deep down it digs at you and confronts what is really happening here? Is this really God? Well, and if you're not aware of the psychological phenomena behind how, um, how, how religious movements work, how yeah, how psychology uh, how, how psychology plays a factor. Um, yeah, you are going to think that you know when, when the feeling wears off that you know there's something wrong with you. And yeah. especially especially this whole thing that you know because you've been cursed by sin. Oh, it's the it's the flesh it's the flesh that's uh, taken back. Like the what's the old saying? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah. And so when your when your human nature takes over, your sinful human nature, oh well you you haven't prayed hard enough, you haven't studied hard enough, you haven't devoted yourself hard enough. Look at that pastor over there. You know, he's you know, he prays, you know, five times a day, an hour at a time or something. You know, you you should really take um inspiration from him. And then it it, it turns out he's probably, you know, engaging in adultery or financial mismanagement or is just a scumbag. Yeah, potentially. Not always, but potentially. Yeah. No, no, but potentially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not the picture they paint for you, for sure. No, no, no. But I, in my um, former charis- former charismatic movement, it turned out that the um, there was a, an, an adultery scandal and a, and financial mismanagement that went on. And it's just interesting that you know this this guy who had the vision of a million churches all over the world. Um, he's planted a church movement that's you know probably a hundred and something churches strong. You know, he was like the go to like. In, in my church, there, there were two fundamental texts. There was the Bible, and then there was the book that the founder wrote. And if you couldn't oh, find geez. the if you, if you couldn't find the answer in in the Bible, then have a look in the book that the founder wrote. I'm sure you'll find something you'll find something in there as well. Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> <laughs> not really. That, 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 that's a, that's a little bit the mentality, though. Even if it's not a book, it's what somebody's saying, and th- this will get us into territory that we probably get into later. But yeah. yeah. But as far as delusions go, like we had that same thing. Like there's this, there was this tiny church I went to out in Wasilla, which is a out in the valley. It's kind of the hillbilly area where we live. Um, And we went to this church that had probably, it couldn't have been more than 50 people. Probably it's this tiny little church, but they'd have these, these ministers travel through and prophets and stuff. And one said that he had images of a first, a trickle, then a pour, then a flood, you know, that basically this church was just going to get huge and grow into this massive movement. And you get these small cores of people and it's weird how they convince themselves that they're just extremely special and huge things are going to happen around them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where once you step out of that environment and look into it, that church is t- as small or tinier now than it was back yeah. then, 30 years ago, probably. Yep. Um, and it's weird how just this little room full of people gets itself all jazzed up once you look at it from the outside. It's it's really quite bizarre. 
It is. It is. And they keep on and, – and it's this whole thing any day now. Um, yeah. God will do something. Um, but at what point – and I think, you know, um, for people like us who left the faith, like we honestly answer the question, at what point do we give up? At what point do we honestly question our faith? But it is interesting to see um, – yeah, to see people who have spent decades in this, in this, in this hyper religious state, basically, who haven't given up the belief. Yeah, and it's like, well, all the generations of humanity before you, you know, nothing happened with them. So what makes what makes you think it's going to happen with you now? Well, because these are actually the end times. See, oh, so, sorry, sorry, <laughs> Zod, I, I I keep forgetting that. Yeah. Not not the time of Jesus where he literally told his followers they were in the end times, but you know now. No, but there so was also did I? Uh, there's also the story of how my church claimed that it essentially was warding off hyper AIDS from reaching Alaska. If you want me to explain that, briefly, oh, oh hyper, oh you, you had me a hyper AIDS Zod. <laughs> there's well, there's not a long story to it, but essentially, someone had a prophecy that he saw tongues of fire all over the United States. Um but they were not on Alaska and those tongues of fire was a mm -hmm. disease that was going to be way worse than AIDS. And just as AIDS of course was caused by promiscuity, especially between same sex couples, of course, and pre pre marital sex between. Yeah. 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 As well, <laughs> this disease was going to be caused by, can you guess what this disease was caused by along those lines? No. Uh, tell, tell me, um, this, this, this disease was caused by abortion. Because that was, Whoa. of course, God's God's judgment for that specific sin, which was, of course, the worst sin that in our land and the biggest Holocaust of our time and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Wow, um, that's um. But those tongues of fire were not on Alaska because of the faithfulness and prayers of our little church, and so these same little bodies of churches that convince themselves they're going to grow and plant all these things, they really saw themselves as essentially what you could mockingly call biblical wizards or christian wizards that were warding off this massive uh, disease yeah. from coming up to their whole state it's the delusions are just it's weird it is which actually kind of touches on the next topic that i wanted to uh, get your thoughts on uh, weird beliefs um uh, intercession i don't know if you use you, you use the word in your church but yeah, intercession was the was the thing that um we believe that we could uh, ward off social evils um, hurricanes, uh, bushfires, that kind of stuff. If only some people stood in the gap between in, in front of God to, you know, to be that hedge of protection around society. Um, you know, does, it, does, does that ring uh, true in your experience? Oh, yeah, for sure. What, what did you call that at first? Uh, intercession. Oh, yeah, intercession. Yeah, absolutely. Intercession was a huge thing. Uh, intercession, intercessory prayer. Yep. Um, yeah, you wanted to, and they would use the phrase standing in the gap, like you're you're yeah. standing there defending people, which, again, there's this weird thing that even as a Christian, you recognize that if God can protect these people, why do you need to be, according to that image, standing in the gap, holding people back in kind of a warfare type imagery? Mm. Oh, actually, you, you know, said it just said warfare. This is the thing. It's always, it's always an us versus an unseen enemy. Yeah, spiritual warfare was a huge, huge part of it as well. Mm -hmm. And like the, the secret sins that allow the enemy into your into your life and into your thoughts and into like you know is your thought life, is your thought life uh, proper? Is your sex life proper? Is your you know, is anything you're watching on TV allowing demonic possession kind of thing? 
Oh, geez, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember speaking of demonic possession, uh I remember I had I used to have sleep paralysis when I was younger. Yep. And my family had a cabin. It's just it's like a little shack out in the way out in the woods, uh an hour or so up the highway. And yep. uh we would stay there to go camping or hunting or whatever. And I got sleep paralysis really bad there one night. I felt like, you know, you feel like you're being pinned down or you're floating and you feel mm -hmm. this presence alongside you. Mm -hmm. And when we'd gone to the cabin, we'd found a beer bottle in there. And for me personally, at that point in Christianity, I don't think it's as much the case now, but drinking was really bad. That's something really bad people did. Oh, yeah. And so my, <laughs> yeah. my little pen sheltered Pentecostal mind connected the dots and realized, hey, there's a beer bottle in here. And I had a demonic attack when I was trying to sleep. Apparently, drinkers came in and invited demons into this cabin. Yep. And that's... Yep. The problem is that's not really a far-fetched thing to think back when you were younger. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Like you, you say something like that and there's either alcohol or illicit drug use or um, something that they watched on TV or or even like a, a, a generational sin, like, you know, maybe their, their, grand, their grandparents saw a psychic or you know, something really weird like that. Yeah. And I've since done a much more spectacular job of drinking beer in that cabin than that guy probably ever did. <laughs> and there still were not demons. So there goes that theory. <laughs> but no, um, you spoke, you touched on something before about sp speaking in tongues. And I'm just uh, re reading your notes about you know, how you felt pressured to, to, to speak in tongues. Um, I remember like I, I, I did as well. And um, in my church, we use the softer term speaking in our spiritual language. Which yeah, was... That, I that sounds familiar too, but we usually use speaking in tongues more often. But okay, yeah, but ahead. we but did you did you did you guys do it in the public services or just behind the scenes in like uh, prayer meetings? So there were two different kinds of speaking in tongues, and I think this was considered biblical. Though I don't off the top of my head don't remember the exact rationale for it. Yeah, but there were speaking in tongues which you would do personally, yep. and that was where the spirits intercessing on your behalf. You don't know the words for what you want, what you need to pray, but you're magically praying the right words. Yeah, so the, the spirit will speak through you and speak those words, yep. which is really weird when you think about it, because that's essentially God asking himself for what I don't know. Essentially, the whole idea, the whole problem with the premise of prayer is God has a a will and a purpose already, right? And a plan. Yep. So why are you praying for him to do what he's already going to do? I've heard different rationales for that, which is, you know, you're aligning your will to God or whatever. Oh, God, yep. But yep. letting the spirit speak through you to ask God to do what God already wants to do. So it's like God it's asking really himself, weird, God's asking yeah, himself to do something for the other part of God. Yeah, he's just laundering his own will through you <laughs> and communicating it back to himself in words you don't even understand. It's like the most weirdly worthless activity. But anyway, I'll quit expressing my bafflement <laughs> over that. <laughs> and, and, and just to clarify, to answer your point, yeah, that's what you would do if you're by yourself is you just speak in tongues. Nothing more needs to come of it. Mm -hmm. In the church, it was understood that, and I don't know if this is your background as well, if you're to go up front and speak out loud in front of the church, there needs to be an interpreter. And I believe that I, Paul or somebody had written that if you speak in tongues in front of a church, uh, no yep, yep, there must it's be an interpreter. Just, it's, it's just vanity and there's no point to it. And, you're, and everyone's just going to think, all the outsiders are going to think you're crazy um, because they're not going to otherwise, apparently. But uh, well, well, just, so there. So, yep. Yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, because that, that reminds me of there was a video of, uh, I think, Kenneth Copeland and 
Rodney Howard Brown, I think it was, and they were both on. Let me just. I'm just look quickly. Just quick looking up now. Um, yeah, uh, Kenneth Copeland, Rodney Howard Brown. Um, they're both on stage, both with mics in front of people, and they're talking to each other in this, in this psycho babble. And it's really, it's like watching two, uh, like two toddlers, you know, try to interact <laughs> with each other, but they're acting like they're having like a, this, you know, this deep spiritual conversation, and it's like. You're like cringe, cringe fest five thousand. It's like you know these are these are two grown men just making making stuff up in their brain, but acting like it's a um acting acting like it's a um a, a thing from God. Actually, just to touch back on the intercession part, um, speaking to Kent of old boy Kenny Copeland, um, his thing about judgment on COVID nineteen was oh, something blowing the wind of God on it. That's all right, bl- blowing the wind yeah. of God. Yeah, yeah. That was something that wouldn't be too far out of place in in my um you know and like like that kind of stuff would have made Charisma magazine and then my pastor subscribed to Charisma magazine and so when we went to his place there's always a copy of Charisma magazine or, or Christianity Today and so you know he then like pop open the, the 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 magazine to the page where like you know the headline would be you know um, Kenneth Copeland pronounces judgment on COVID-19 and it's like look guys you know COVID-19 is about to end because this great man Kenny Copeland has blown judgment on it and guess where guess where we are now yeah yeah it's a weird it's a weird thing to do without giving yourself some kind of out or some kind of vagueness to it Uh, I think I don't know if he regrets that well I think I think the fact that he is Ken Copeland and the money will keep on rolling in no matter what yeah you know that's um, but yeah, the other thing that uh, the other or the other weird beliefs that I do want to get your thoughts on were um, he- healing by touch. Like you know, if someone comes in, if someone comes in with a with a personal uh, with a physical malady like a virus or a or a cancer growth or a you know, I've even heard of the stories of limbs being grown. You know that you just lay lay your hands on someone and the power of God flows through those hands into the person. And miraculously, they're healed, like you know, a la Benny Hinn, a Benny Hinn crusade, or you know, yeah, yeah. That was um. So I remember one time where some missionary from Africa, he was actually an African gentleman. He had yep. he had come over and was traveling around, and he did what everyone was saying was healings. And I wasn't allowed to go up front. For some reason, my parents didn't let me go up front there. Maybe they thought that was a little too weird for them. Um, as involved <laughs> as they were in the church, I realized in hindsight, do my parents credit, they, they were religious. They still are now. They process that pretty well and are decent toward me. But yep. they were, all, all the kids I grew up with, now looking back, see my parents as the chilled out, decent, sensible ones. Okay, yep, yep. Where all, all the other parents were like yelling at them and beating them for not speaking in tongues and all this kind of stuff. Really? But, wow. Uh, yeah, they were. Uh, but the laying out of hands, he, th- that guy was the only instance where it was supposedly miraculous. And I'm sure he was just doing the same old tricks as usual. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, you know, people in p- people in school the next day, I was jealous because they had seen this little thing shrink or that little thing grow as far as a limb or something like that. Um, 
you know, God generally doesn't heal amputees, which is, I think, one of the stereotypical things atheists like to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. But except, of course, when one leg gets slightly longer, you know, <laughs> in that little sleight of hand trick. But laying on a hands in general, it was something that you were supposed to do when you were praying for someone is put your hand on usually on their back yep. or their shoulder or something. Yep. Or if we were if we were praying for somebody in any instance, the whole church or whatever group would gather put around towards the. Or we would actually gather up front and everybody have their hand either on that person or on the person, like a chain of people with hands on each other. <laughs> yeah. And I can just imagine, I can just imagine God's will being thwarted because, you know, Stephen down the uh, three rows in, you know, didn't have his, didn't have his hand on someone properly. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, the chain's been broken. Get, no, no healing for you. Or you get a conspiracy of people to break the chain in a bunch of areas and like only, only a quarter of the people they thought were pouring <laughs> God's power into the person. So he didn't get nearly as healed as he might have. No, no. Um, which then leads to the next one um, that that came came to mind was um, demons causing maladies, uh, and in particular mental health issues. Now, as as someone who has been uh, professionally diagnosed with 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 things ending in the word in the word disorder, um, mm-hmm. you know, I was. Um, how can I say? Like th- there were times when my anxiety would would manifest um in 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 particular ways and i I was like they would say that i had some sort of spirit who was uh, like influencing me or possessing me or controlling me or, or or something and then it actually turned out that no hold on i've actually got these particular issues um but it was always like every malady could be attributed to Satan doing something. Yeah, that was, you know, that that was that varied within my experience. Um, I think for the most part, I remember ailments understood as being actual, just diseases and stuff. Even though you thought you could supernaturally heal them. Yep. But there were there were definitely times where. Um, in a period where I came back to that same church as an adult after being out in, in the world, you know, in other churches and doing my thing in college and stuff. Uh, there was a period of time where everything was a spirit of something. Like I had, a, I had uh, a, yeah. uh, one, one, mm-hmm. one of my children was a little slow to start speaking as I, as I had been at his age. Yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> one of, one of the people from the church asked my wife at the time, have you tried praying the mute spirit out of him? <laughs> Which we found to be a pretty distasteful and honestly, in my opinion, stupid thing to say. Yep. But there's a whole whole body of things that you misunderstand, I think, when you when you consider something a a spiritual, a spiritual curse or yep. and this gets down to general generational curses. I don't know if that yep. was part of your experience. Uh, indeed, yep, yep. That was uh yep, that was a thing. And in that later experience too, part of this spiritual warfare or this combat against diseases was the idea of speaking things over people where yep. your words, just as God supposedly spoke the wor- world into existence, mm-hmm. all of our words have creative power such that you say something slightly negative that gives the devil or demons opportunities to get their hands on somebody and yep. cause something bad to happen. Where if you speak positive things over them, that releases that and allows God to work and uh, re- has some sort of healing pr- property to it. Re- release. That's a, that, that was a, that was a thing as well. I release the blessing. I release the power. I release you from this curse. I release, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, 
Yeah, that was. Well, I was going to say, like, um, in in my belief, um, obviously, colds and that were um, were physical ailments. But especially when it came to something that couldn't be detected, something unseen, something malicious, or in particular, mental health issues, um, yeah, that was definitely Satan. There was no, um, yeah, I can say, like, to the point that anyone who saw who who sought uh, treatment from outside professionals uh, were seen as not having enough faith. Oh gosh, yeah, that was. There was, again, this was more the second time I came back to that same church and they got crazy. Like at at first in that church, it was all very controlled. If you wanted to go speak in tongues, you went up and sat next to an elder or preacher who was sitting up front. They would hear what you had to say or what you wanted to do. Then you would step up to a mic that was just in front of the uh, stage there and you could do your thing. And then it was expected if you spoke in tongues, somebody else would come up and prophesy. And you yeah. probably know what that sounds like. It's just general things about how God loves you and fortune cookie type stuff. <laughs> For, fortune I mean, cookie, re- fortune yeah, cookie, a star sign. Um, yeah, hyper emotionalism. Yeah, no, nobody's 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 going up front and saying anything specific about what's going to happen tomorrow, or who's sleeping with whose wife, or which terrorist attack looks, looks fin- at magazines at home you know that kind of thing. Fin- yeah. financial stock market crash um exactly car crash all that kind of stuff but that was uh that was the early the early version the second version had all kinds of weird things of people just blurting things out in the middle of church hollering screaming and stuff like that oh and that's okay. that's where a lot more that's where a lot more of this started coming up as far as the the, the curses things being considered uh ailments because of demons and there was something else I feel like I wandered off topic that you just brought up. What? Um, just trying to think. Uh, <laughs> m- 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 mental health. Um, I think I spoke about that. Oh, look, if he comes, if he comes back, to you just interrupt me. Um, and the other thing was uh, Satan cause minions of Satan causing problems for pious Christians. Like I remember, there was a. Uh, oh, wanted- I, actually, I, if you want me to interrupt real quick, I remember no, what it was. Pl- please do. Yeah, go go for it. Yeah, it, it was the it was the thing about not going to not going to get actual professional treatment for uh, you. Yeah. So it was in that, it was in that last more crazy environment that they started getting like that. Like, don't go to the doctor. That's not having faith. You need to just pray over it. And actually the pastor of that church, he had some kind of mental slash physical ailment, which was really weird that I don't, I don't want to go into for the sake no, of that's what, that's speaking what. too much about his personal life. But he sought medical help and ended up going down to the Mayo Clinic and there was a big controversy in that church where a large number of them were really condemning him for going out and getting help from doctors where he should have been seeking the Lord or trusting in God. Oh no, he went and sought. <laughs> he went which and sought is a horrible adult. thing to do. Yeah. Oh, as yeah. much as I don't, as much as I don't care for you know what he would have taught and things like that and what he did in his position as pastor, mm-hmm. that's still a really inhumane way to treat anybody. I do, and you know, especially at a place of vulnerability. So I definitely remember aspects of that so that was what i had meant to circle back to no that's all that's all right we'll, we'll, we'll get into the, the the dangerous part a little bit later on but the other thing i wanted to touch on quickly was um demons wreaking havoc on the behests of satan causing problems for pious christians and there was a one example of that comes to mind where um there was a in one of the churches i was in uh, they were sending a mission trip uh to thailand uh, but apparently um the flights got delayed and the 
the the rationale was that Satan was causing problems so that this mission trip wouldn't go ahead. This mission trip wouldn't go ahead. I was thinking, well, hold on. If Satan has the power to delay airline schedules, <laughs> you know, why 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 do we need aircraft engineers and why do we need uh, meteorologists and why do we need air traffic controllers? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Um, there was another one where this woman I know she she got a flat tire while traveling at high speed. And she later told me that it was a spirit of death trying to kill her by causing her tire to, you know, to pop um, as she's traveling at high speed. Yeah, because because of oh. course, you know, that's that's the easiest way for Satan to kill people is by popping yeah. by popping a tire. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say very ineffective assassin, but yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a sitcom where Satan, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm probably yeah, revealing a, a, an idea here, you know, where Satan like tries to kill, but he's just so incompetent that he just can't, he just can't <laughs> get, the, he just can't get the job done. But it, it got a little bit more serious when, um, uh, in Hillsong, there was a song that we we would sing fairly frequently called Desert Song, and it's about, you know, I don't, don't know if you've heard of it. The whole the whole lyrical theme is about, you know, you being broken. Um, and you losing things and you going through tragedy so that God can uh, make something better of you. And this is this is another thing that plays into what I think is the anti-human aspect of Christianity where, you know, you have to be, you know, defeated and subjugated in order for, to be useful kind of thing. But um, so the person who wrote Desert Song, apparently she had a miscarriage and before – before the song is about to be to be publicly publicly released, she had this miscarriage, and she was umming and ahhing about um, whether to perform it or not. And I think if I remember the if I remember the quote correctly, she was saying that well, if I, if I don't perform this song, Satan has won. Oh wow! And I was trying to think. Well, hold on. Are you are you you know granting Satan the power to kill you know to, to cause miscarriages? I was thinking, well, this is um, holy, holy crap. That's um, and of course, my my church ate that up, and said, so, well, oh, yeah, yeah let, let's sing desert song because so we can stick it up Satan, you know, kind of thing. But um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, but then it gets into um, the other thing I wanted to quickly touch on was um, uh, Todd Bentley and Smith Wigglesworth. Um, they're two uh, Pentecostal, well, you know, spirit spiritual preachers who had this thing about literally hitting people to get demons out of them. Huh. Now I don't know if you've you've seen the videos, but you know, like Todd Bentley will will speak very proudly about, you know, oh, I was up on stage and this woman, you know, started manifesting. I felt the spirit of God say, slap it out of her. And there is video of, you know, Todd Bentley, you know, physically assaulting someone, you know, almost comical WWE style. Um yeah, and it's like, well, yeah, what happens when that goes wrong? You know, that's um, yeah, yeah I can it's, cer I can it's certainly not going to go right in any way, but yeah, no. Then um, this whole thing about being empowered for service was um, I think you may you may I think you may touch on that before, where if you don't have the Holy Spirit working in you, you can't serve because you're not empowered for service. Yeah, that's actually something that I wanted to circle back to before no, we, we'd move on because please, please do, please do. To, to do to do this topic justice for you, one of the one of the core, obviously the core teaching of Pentecostalism is speaking in tongues. If you were to point to one thing that sets it aside from the rest of Christianity, that's it by definition. Indeed, indeed. And I think it's worth pointing out for those who aren't as familiar with Pentecostalism that it's not just an extra thing your denomination does. 
it's very core to how they understand Christianity. So that at least in the denominations I grew up in, you had this sequence where you would first, first step was to get saved. Mm -hmm. You would get baptized in water after that. Yep. And then at that point, you were going to go to heaven if you got hit by a bus the next day or something like that. That was all, that was all fine. And that was set. But until you got, and I think this goes into the empowered for service thing until you got baptized by the Holy spirit, which I thought was the next step. Yep. That's what triggered you to speak in tongues and speaking in tongues was a sign of having the power of the Holy spirit on you. So speaking in tongues wasn't just to present a message for the church for someone else to interpret it. It wasn't a guarantee. It wasn't just a guarantee of your salvation. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a sign that you had the power of the Holy spirit in you. And so until you did, you were just a weak Christian. And if you didn't get the Holy spirit on you, either you weren't doing something quite right or trying to connect to God or receive it, or you just didn't want it. Or there was a, there, there, there was a secret sin that's holding you back. Yeah. Through some deficiency, you were a weak Christian who, yeah, you technically get to heaven, but you weren't going to be effective. You didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit working through you, which is what we all needed to do anything effective as Christians. <laughs> and you weren't yeah. in a form of communion with God, which I think was the thing that dug most deep at people. Yeah. When you had the power of the Holy Spirit or you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you were in some kind of communication where you had some kind of hotline to him where you were just kind of floating half connected to God until that happened. And this was a really core aspect of Pentecostalism. Yep. And a huge part of why the churches I was in looked down on non-Pentecostal churches. They were oh. they were technically saved and they would go to heaven, but they were not in the core group and they had stopped short of really being what God wanted them to be and were essentially powerless Christians. Yeah, that's um, and that's probably the ne next part I want to chat to was it was the, the the dangers of Pentecostalism, and you raise this whole us versus well, in yours in your case it was a soft us versus them, and in my case in, in my church it was a very soft soft us versus them, but there were also, um, like what I've noticed is that any church that has revival or fire or harvest in its name is almost guaranteed to be a um, like like a, a right wing, hardcore you know hardcore Pentecostalist charismatic uh, church that almost believes that if you're not part of their church or if you dare to leave their church, you're not going to be saved. Mm -hmm. And that and um, yeah, sorry, I don't recall anything like that. But yeah, it was more of the mentality like from from ours as long as you had the power of spirit and speaking in tongues you could go off it was good to attend church but your salvation didn't hinge on being in a particular church no, yeah, no, no it was the same it was still the same kind of insular environment for sure oh indeed but yeah, i'm saying there there are there are churches in australia where you know that they, they do strongly believe that you know as soon as you leave um as soon as you leave their fellowship that's it your sal your sal your salvation's gone um it's a bit like um being an apostate in uh, in the jehovah's witness uh yeah. faith a bit like that um, and we, we touched on one of the other dangers that, that speaks to me was the lack of mental health training, which prevents proper treatment. Now, I can speak in my in my personal experience where, you know, I had a spirit of rebellion and I had all these other, you know, all, these, all these other things. Um, you know, no idiot. I just thought for myself, um, you know, like being convinced that uh, mental health issues have a spiritual cause prevents proper treatment. And it wasn't until, like, I, in my experience, um, I delayed treatment for at least a good 15 or so years 
because you know I was convinced that you know one the issues are spiritual. Uh, two, if I go to, if I go see this particular man of God who understands uh, the spiritual world, you know he'll pray for me and these demons will go from me. And then you know as long as I keep myself you know right with God, then everything will be fine. But yeah, in my experience, it wasn't until I almost hospitalized myself that I realized, hold on, thinking about it spiritually is the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, and it was it wasn't until my workplace actually funded uh, funded me to go see a psychologist that I actually kind of realized, hold on, I've had these issues all my life. Um, there's you know there's nothing spiritual there's nothing spiritual to it. You know, thanks a lot, guys. Oh yeah, psychologists, you definitely depending on the it was it was church by church and person by person indeed indeed but, 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 but psychologists were almost like a byword like they were they were a worldly <laughs> way of addressing what was supposed to be a spiritual problem correct yep 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 and that could be because you treated the core issue as a spiritual issue definitely when it came to quote unquote rebellion or other things that you should be treating as a an issue of sin or a personal deficiency psychology was it was seen as a really soft approach to you just need to pull it together and quit sending and do the right thing. You're kind, of, you're kind of coddling people with treatment instead of getting them right with God. Well, I find it interesting that like the oncologists or the radiologists or, you know, those kind of doctors are doing the will of God. Like they're, they're God's mercy extended through humans, but the psychologists and the psychiatrists and the behavioral therapists, oh, no, no, they're the, they're, they're the evil atheist empire who are trying to undo, you know, they're trying to infiltrate the lives of pious Christians. Yeah. There's a couple reasons for that. One is that if somebody breaks their leg and you pray for them instead of sending them to the hospital, it's really evident to everybody what's going wrong. <laughs> And there, that, 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 that the lack of healing is going to be very clear. Um, and while that sounds funny, it's really sad that if somebody's having a mental health issue mm -hmm. and it doesn't get treated, the issue's still there. It's just, in, it's just invisible indeed, or it's indeed. more easily, it's more easily misunderstood. It's going to manifest in behaviors that again are going to be considered spiritual, just this person's being central or causing problems or having behavioral issues. Especially if you look at the history of, uh, uh, epilepsy. Like if you can, you can if you can imagine like back in especially back in Jesus' time, if you had epilepsy, then yeah, it's like you were literally under under the the spell of Satan, and you know that's a. Uh, and I think even or, up were, or or in Pentecostal churches, you're an amazing Christian who has the Holy Spirit upon them. Well, uh, six of one half, six of one half, <laughs> half dozen the other, which then leads to the next point uh, about in what I would say emotional mismanagement. Um, because there's no formal counseling, uh, no formal training. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, especially in my former movement, your qualification to be a minister was that someone else thought you were called to be a minister. Oh, yeah. So um, you, you could be, be like, so, so, so you could be like, you could be a nice, a nice person, nice, genuine, warm hearted person. And I can, I can tell the people in my former movement are genuine, warm-hearted people, but that doesn't mean they know how to handle someone who's been sexually abused, someone who's been uh, through domestic violence, someone with you know mental health disorders. Yeah, that was a huge part. At least Assemblies of God, I think, sends people to seminary, but a lot of non-denominational churches, including the first one I had grown up in, mm -hmm. you definitely did not 
they did not care for seminary one bit. That was that they, they was call, where they that called was it cemetery. Sorry, go ahead. I said that they called it cemetery. Oh, I never heard that, but yeah, that was where that was where you go get a fancy worldly education, even though it's in the Bible, or it's just unnecessary. You know, knowledge <laughs> yeah. puffeth up and that kind of thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where just being called by God, it has this folksy, sincere feel to it, but it really is dangerous because, like you said, these people are not prepared to even run an organization effectively or like you said, deal with, deal with sexual abuse or any, any situation where they're supposed to be a mandatory reporter, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. counsel people, anything like that. But what happens is when you tell, when you give them the impression that they've been called, and I think they really think they are, I don't think these people are all entirely insincere. No. You think that going out and getting an education makes you prideful or puffs you up with knowledge or whatever. But when they just tell you you're called and you don't need whatever that education gives you, you just have it inside yourself. That presents you with an automatic form of authority behind everything you say, where they just charge into charge into problems and deal with them as they see fit off the top of their head, because that's the spirit working through them. And that's them being a person called by God. And not only does that lend credence to very bad decisions or at least very poorly thought out or justified decisions. Indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then anybody who criticizes that is criticizing somebody who has the call of God on his life, and it is going to be his usually. And, and they would also, and, and in that, they would cite the uh, the verse of David saying, you know, how, how dare I lift a hand against God's anointed? And so if yeah. you if you even had a bad thought, you know, that's that's Satan trying to undo undo the will of God by giving you a bad thought about you know the the holy one of God. Yeah, exactly. Kind of thing, but yeah, well, like so when when your only qualification for ministry is that you've had hands laid on you, you got a pat on the back saying yeah, at, saying well done, you know, off you go. Then yeah, of course you are, you know, you can try, you, you can try help people, but unless you've had that, you know, deep uh, deep understanding, and I I actually think that it should be mandatory for uh, people in religious positions to undergo some sort of one mental health training. Uh, to uh, abuse training, three crisis counselling, like that that kind of stuff, because they really, are, especially in Western culture where Christianity has this uh, has its prime place, you know. Well, look, you know, um, let's help people by at least giving the the cu- cultural thought leaders, you know, the training they need to help the, the, the help the broken people, um, which then leads into financial mismanagement as well. If you've never run a business. And you've got all this money coming in. Well, what are you going to do with it? Yeah, you know. And like for, I suppose for for those who are trying, you know, um, you know, they're not going to spend it willy nilly. But then, once you get enough money to to be safe, and you know how to work around the accountancy proce- procedures, well. And it also helps when you li- when you're in the U.S. And I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the U.S. There's literally no accounting requirements for a church. Um, really, you can you can operate and also be not pay taxes, mm-hmm. and you, there's no requirements. To my knowledge, there's no requirements for um, declaring anything related to your finances or your money, and so it's all entirely under the table. You're you're not, of course, answer answerable to a. Oversight to investors or anything like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if the church builds it in, the pastor is going to be answered to the board, but that's all internal to the church. That's how they decide to handle it. Yeah. yeah. And 
Um, and yeah, for you can, it's not like a, a, a regular nonprofit where there are accounting requirements and things you have to show as far as how you're using your money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You just call yourself a church and uh, that yep. settles it. Yep. In fact, I don't know. Have you ever seen John Oliver? Yes. Yep. Have you seen his episode about uh, televangelists? Yes, I have. Yes, I've. Uh, yes. Yeah, in, in that in that episode, which you're he's familiar with for the sake of the audience, he actually okay. start he, he he was able to tick off the boxes and call himself a church, and start a tax exempt organization just by virtue of the fact that he called himself a church, had mm-hmm. a couple teachings, and had a group of people in the form of his audience that was considered a congregation, and his lawyers le- said that was legally enough for him to be called a church and to have nonprofit status. Our Lady of Perpetual Exemption. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like in in Australia, in the last ten years or so, there is a body that's called the Australian Charities and Not for Profits Commission, mm-hmm. and so it is actually if you are getting uh, tax tax breaks for being a religion or for being a charity, then yeah, you do have to you do have to report, and you can jump onto a website and so you you can actually see the. Um, the financial structure of your church, which I think is pretty good because I, I found out that the church I used to be in back in my hometown, that was actually being run by uh, one of the churches in one of the other states. And I just found it interesting that, well, hold on, that's not who you were saying was running running the church. And it's like, well, hold on. And I, th- and I think it's because they hadn't met, they hadn't met the requirements for, you know, for whatever it is. And so, yeah, they, they had to like, quickly sneak themselves under the authority of one of the churches interstate in order to fulfill their requirements. Wow. But the other- yeah, there was- Sorry, you go. Oh, so it's all entirely voluntary. And just to give a picture of what it looks like, mm-hmm. some churches would put out a statement saying what the pastor made, what all these other people made. One pastor who generally I would say lived well, um, he that church released on its documents just staff expenditures and gave one lump sum for everybody. So there was not even any declaration of what he was making. Oh, oh but even, even wow. in cases where they even even in cases where they are, this is anecdotal. Mm-hmm. But really, when you have when the church is operating as a big slush fund and there's no account, accounting requirements, there's still even if the pastor only has a certain declared salary, there's still all kinds of ways to get your hand on the money. And mm-hmm. in one church, when I, I was a teenager, my my brother and I, this guy brought us down to the uh, church office and said, Hey, I want you to watch this. And he took all the money out of the plate and stuck it in something. And, and he said, okay, this is just for accountability so that people Oof. can see where the money went. Cause that, you know, they need another person in the room. I'm like, in, in hindsight, I look back wow. and think the opportunities just to palm cash among other things. If you think if your idea of accountability is bringing two teenagers down into an office and letting them watch you put the money away, which, you know, the chain of custody was a little loose mm-hmm. before and after that event, <laughs> Beside, you know, all, all else aside. So there's a lot of room for financial abuses there, but I don't need to park on that too long, but that's just, no, like, that's hopefully paints a picture of what it looks like. Or, or, or what, what it can look like. Like there are, there are definitely churches who try to do the right thing, um, but especially the closer you get to non-denominational Christianity, then the yeah. more the, 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 or the looser the reins are tightened up. Yeah, I don't mean to paint with a broad brush. I just mean what the requirements are, and that yes. whatever whatever happens is purely voluntary. So, yeah, uh, indeed, indeed. Which then leads to the next uh, danger I feel about Pentecostalism is political engagement. Um, uh, yeah. I, yes. Now, I'm, yeah, uh, I can tell you in in Australia, um, every natural disaster we have is inevitably blamed on 
uh, Australia's acceptance of either abortion, uh, gay marriage. Um, there was one. Uh, there was one flood that was blamed on the prime minister criticizing Israel. Hmm. Yes. Um. Yeah, of course. So, so because because the prime minister dared to say something about like Israel not treating Palestinians correctly, then you know that was that was you know, God sent a flood which you know killed people and you know wiped out livelihoods because God was upset about something. Um. And yeah, so there was actually a uh, back in the late two thousands, I think, or late two thousands, early early twenty tens, there was a there was a church called Catch the Fire Ministries. Uh, who then tried? To, who then started up a party called Rise Up Australia? Who who tried to get into try try to get into the Senate and all that kind of stuff? Um, that they were definitely seen as the the crazy right wing Christians that wouldn't be too far out of place in in American society. Um, they eventually had their um, their tax exempt status of their church cancelled because the church and the political party were too close together. Oh, okay. So, so you had that, but then also, um, you have uh, like it's probably a bit more pronounced in America, but over here you do also you, we did also have the Pentecostal slash New Charismatic churches breaching the lockdown and anti-mask laws as well. And there was one, there was one pastor who he had the cameras in front of him and said, "Look, um, the Bible says not to forsake meeting meeting people, and it is our God-given duty to have weekly church services, and the lockdown can't." If we if we obey lockdown, we're not obeying God, kind of thing. And it's yeah, like geez. you 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 idiot. There's there's a virus disproportionately killing older people. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. like you know, have have a bit of common sense. You know, there, there's a thing called online meeting that you know you can do. Which yeah, yeah. But no, uh, tell me some stories of the political engagement in your part of the world, Zod. Yeah, boy, that's uh. In the U.S., most most people listening to this, at least from the U.S., know that um, the evangelical church is very tied to politics. The essential coup attack on our coup attempt that was an attack on our capital mm-hmm. was very closely aligned to Dominionist Christianity. Mm-hmm. Even you know, even though most Christians I know would not like blame for that, and that, that's fair for them, but the two were very closely aligned. So. Politics and Christianity are very close over here. Uh, there's a point where, so without without political or without financial accountability or any kind of really transparency necessary for a church, yep. it used to it used to be that they could just essentially tell us who to vote for. And I remember um, when I was younger, especially like for example at our Christian school, my brother told me about how his kindergarten teacher had their whole class sitting there in a room praying that Reagan would win the election. Um, or our, our pastor, our pastor, um, there was some kind of thing about a bombing in Libya or something like that. I was pretty young, so I don't remember exactly which precise event this was. Yep. But the pastor went around from classroom to classroom, and I remember him stopping by ours, telling us how the media is, of course, smearing in. It's fake news, essentially, to put it in today's language. Yeah. yeah. So he was getting involved in politics that way of course sticking up for a republican president um that got clamped down on a little bit in that you can't really overtly advocate politics over the pulpit now or you could lose your tax exempt status because of i think campaigning laws 
Uh, of course, Christians know how to throw themselves on the floor and act like they're victims of persecution because of that, because yep. every instance of trying to enforce that is portrayed as uh, some government demanding their sermon notes so that they can come uh, over and see if they're a hate group and all that kind of stuff. Well, actually, just when, just, just on that, um, Telltale, uh, Owen Morgan, he's uh, like he's, some of his videos about uh, I think I think he called it Christian ISIS, yeah. where he um, his daughter exposed a uh, a health teacher uh, proselytizing class. Yeah, like that is that is hella scary. Oh yeah, for sure. Um. Yeah, and it's getting there. There are parts. There are parts of the country, Alaska. We're 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 generally conservative, but it's kind of like close to you know forty five, fifty five, where there's a pretty good mix of types of people up here. Mm -hmm. And the people who are conservative aren't the kind in the South where you need to worry about you know if some if somebody f discovered my channel worrying about my house being vandalized or people threatening me or anything like that. It's not the deep South kind of thing. Okay. Oh, good. Good. But, That's a yeah. But as far as as far as political advocacy, I think the workaround once once you weren't allowed to just tell people who to vote for was to what i remember issues was they would yeah they would they would say these are the issues that got that stands for godliness these are the issues that are against godliness mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then they would give us a piece of paper saying which person voted for which issue uh yeah i've, so, I've, seen, I've seen those as well yep yep yeah so so they're essentially telling you who to vote for they're just telling you which issue is godly and which issue isn't and then labeling which person is so they're telling you who to vote for, but with a small buffer in there. Indeed, like there's exactly the workaround. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, interesting. Now, I suppose the question is, what is, what will be the next great awakening in Christianity? Um, part of me thinks it'll be liberal Christianity, given given that um, you know, given that we are going through a period of identity politics where race is. Race is a big factor. Um, gender identity is a big factor. Um, uh, LGBT rights are, are now a thing. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a I have a feeling now that um, the next great awakening may well be a liberal, a liberal or a soft evangelical Christianity. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I could see it going a couple ways. I would see. So I see Christianity kind of being driven to the fringes of society. Mm -hmm. And there are two different ways to react to that. I think their numbers are getting chipped away at. I think as long as we have a open, free society and easily accessible information through the internet, Christians can have as many kids as they want, but they're going to be bleeding numbers because those kids are going to get on the internet and learn things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're going to end up inheriting a lot of the people that they produced for us. Uh, but I think two reactions to that. One would be to become more, to become more liberal or soft or, essentially secularize yourself so that you can fit in with society yep. and try to accommodate not only more tolerant stances, but more science friendly stances and sort of yep. align yep. yourself with the current knowledge. The other one, and the thing that I would see as being more of more what likely. I would, what, what, or well, I'd see these two existing side by side, mm -hmm. but the one I would see being more of an awakening type movement or that same kind of radicalized movement would be the people on the fringes who, as they see their numbers getting smaller, feel ostracized and become more radicalized, which we're already seeing, you mm -hmm. know, we're seeing Christianity, at least within like the U S and more, most first world countries. Yep. It's getting smaller, but it's getting more entrenched and more angry and more radicalized and more, more doomsday prep. Yeah. Which is, uh, uh who, who was it? Um, 
uh, Telltale had a video on, uh, I saw a video from his yesterday where Jim Baker was, uh, he had a, um, a guest talking about uh, zombies um, coming through and like there's this like zombie threat that's uh, uh, something about like demons having a, a thirst for human blood and they're working through... <laughs> They're working through humans to uh, do something. I, <laughs> I was too I was too busy guffawing to actually take take too much notice. But yeah, uh, but given that Christianity has survived turmoil, uh, survived cultural and ecclesiastical change in its two thousand year history, um, uh, Christianity will transform itself into something else. But I think the the big question is, what is that something else that it'll transform into? Yeah, it's it's really hard to say, and I think it's going to be a very nuanced answer. I don't think it's, I don't think you can label one or two specific changes. Um, and a lot of it depends on just what the future looks like. It's going to adapt to whatever the future looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would see it, I guess, in, in broadest strokes, I would see those two parallel things being a a more secularized, liberal, growing movement, and then a smaller fringe, radical movement that's going to get more and more angry. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, it's just going to be it, it, it's it's going to evolve to whatever direction society evolves. It's uh, it kind of explained the, at least the big picture feel of what the flow would look like in a video called um, "The Story of Mike: How a Modern Christian Pretends to Believe the Bible." I believe. What, what was it? Sorry, I missed it. I, I I think I called it the story of Mike: How a modern Christian uh, pretends yeah. to believe the Bible. Yeah, and basically. The, the end conclusion was that, you know, of course, he he takes this mesh of social issues and pretends that it's what the Bible says, even though he's rejecting a lot of it and making it fit what he wants to believe. And kind of what my end wrap up conclusion was, was he's going to he thinks that this tw- this flash in the pan version of Christianity, which is 20th century evangelicalism or 21st century evangelicalism, he thinks that's more or less what Christianity always was. And I think that's what we most of us as believers thought. And Pentecostalism, of course, thinks that their little version of Christianity was the true Christianity going back yeah. to the early church when they were all speaking <laughs> yeah. in tongues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though what it is, is this ever morphing thing where you have this one generation of things that you think is the true Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I said that he, if he were to meet any Christian from back in the past, he would think they were all weird and crazy and vile. Christians 50 years in the 50, 100, 200 years in the future are going to think he's weird, crazy and vile and is pra- practicing something that's not Christianity as they understand it. But what that's going to be is going to be so unfamiliar to us. I don't even know how to characterize it other than it's just going to continue adapting to society. That's an interesting point. Well, on the, on that note, Zod, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me on. This is a lot of fun to talk about. <laughs> Likewise, I'm sure we'll uh, there'll be lots more uh, juicy topics to talk about later on. But otherwise, uh, Professor Zod, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. See ya. See ya. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe and rate it on whatever platform you find it on, and share it on your social media. Continue the discussion on the discussion post, as well as check out more thought-provoking content over at www.tallfriendlyatheistdad.com. If you wish to be a guest, would like me as a guest on your podcast or platform, or even to be a sponsor, head over to the Twitter account for this podcast, at TFADpod. But the best way to support this podcast is to head over to the iTunes bookstore or Google Play and purchase your copy of The Best Religion for the Task at Hand, a response to creationism and why humanism is morally superior to the Bible. 
you'll be engaged by it. Thank you for listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Have a great day. Have a great week. See you next time.